0: Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to you all. Uh, My name, for those who don't know me, my name is Yaakov Yadgar, and I'm here to present the speakers today. But I suspect there is very little need to introduce Professor Ella Shohat. Certainly not to an engaged intellectual audience as Oxford's. Instead, (laughs) indulge me and let me talk about myself a little bit. I first came to know Professor Shochat's work after having managed to complete an undergraduate degree in political studies in Israel in the mid-1990s without reading a single word on what must have been the most pertinent political issue in my immediate surrounding, namely the predicament of being a non-Ashkenazi Jew in Israel. Apparently, my professors, like the discursive field as a whole, did not see this as an important issue for the understanding of Israeli politics. Reading her work, actually stumbling upon it by chance, on the subject has been a revelation of sorts. It opened one's eyes to see the nature of the murky sociopolitical waters in which one was swimming. Her writing also enabled a critical discussion to take place in a wider frame of things, such that... By then was limited to a marginalized, largely silenced fringe of intellectual and political activists. Since then, I would always assign her work as required reading in my courses on Israeli culture, society, and politics and time and time again, I would observe the same effect taking place with certain students, thinking individuals who were lacking the words to articulate a predicament that dominated their lives, realizing many times, often for the first time, that there is a whole different way to think about what matters to them most. You can see what I am, why I am genuinely, truly delighted and deeply honoured to introduce to you Professor Ella habiba Shohat. Professor Shokhat teaches at the Department of Art and Public Policy and Middle Eastern and Islamic Studies at New York University. She has lectured and written extensively on issues having to do with post-colonial and transnational approaches to cultural studies, she is the recipient of such fellowships, to mention just but a few. Rockefeller Foundation, Fulbright Lectureship and Research, and the Society for Humanities at Cornell University, where she also taught at the School of Criticism and Theory. Ella will be talking today on the question of judeo arabic Nation, Partition, and the Linguistic Imaginary. Her talk will be followed by comments by Dr. Yuval Ivry, whom I'll present now, so we won't be breaking this later, There are obvious ties connecting Dr. Ivry's work to the epistemological foundation laid by Ella. Previously, his work focused on the contested visions of Al-Andalus, Sepharad, in modern Jewish discourse by exploring debates among intellectuals regarding the historical memory of the Jewish cultural legacy of uh, Islamic Iberia and its potential role in shaping the future of Jewish national cultural revival. Most currently... Yuval has been studying cultural and political circles of Jewish Arab or Arab Jewish natives of mandatory Palestine. His work explores their involvement in the political and cultural arenas in light of the rising national clashes between Jews and Arabs in Palestine tracing their efforts to establish a shared Jewish-Arab society through political mediation and cultural conversations. For welcoming Ella to take the stage, I must thank Kaya for enabling this thing to happen. Without her help, we wouldn't be able to put this through, and uh, we're grateful.
1: I have no words to thank Yaakov Yadgar, who initiated this whole uh, series of events. Yaakov has initiated... uh, this event and uh, uh, several other events that we're going to have here at Oxford. I'm extremely grateful to him. I'm also grateful to Eugene Rogan and to Avi Schleim for supporting uh, my visit here. And also thank you, Yuval, for uh, agreeing to be the respondent on this panel. It's a tremendous pleasure to be here at Oxford, to return here and speak about a a topic that has been so dear to me. I should also add maybe a personal note that is um, especially moving to me because when my father was still alive, he went to Baghdad's uh, Shamash High School, which actually was certified by the University of London, While, of course, uh, the land of uh, Britain carries a certain kind of colonial overtones, and certainly this is part of what I have been engaging in my work, there is also a certain kind of a way in which I uh, dare to imagine his pleasure at his daughter arriving and speaking here in Oxford. So forgive this somewhat the personal tone of this introduction. But this is also a topic that, although it is part of ac- academic scholarship, it is also a topic that I only stumbled upon, It shall we say, precisely because it is also part of my own history in terms of the first language I spoke at home, which was the Iraqi, the Baghdadi Jewish dialect. The project as a whole, and it's part of a larger project, it addresses the issue of, and let me, let me also say, sorry, that I'm not a linguist by any, uh, I'm, I'm not a linguist. I come also to this topic as a cultural studies scholar, a postcolonial colonial studies co- scholar. So my approach to the question of language, and hence the notion of the linguistic imaginary, uh, will not at all resonate with traditional modes of approaching language studies. The project addresses the issue of linguistic belonging as invented within national and colonial itineraries. More specifically, it explores the genealogy of the the notion of Judeo-Arabic language and its axiomatic definition as a cohesive unit separate from Arabic. Underscoring instead the terms deployed by Arabic-speaking Jews themselves, I am asking whether the concept of Judeo-Arabic proposed by contemporary linguists, corresponds to the naming within the language itself, or rather to a paradigm influenced by post-Haskalah, or post-Enlightenment Judaic studies and Jewish nationalism. While recognizing the specificities of the Arabic, and I will use the term Arabics in the plural, deployed by Jews, I try to interrogate the view of Judeo-Arabic as classifiable under the historically novel rubric of isolatable Jewish languages, severed from their neighboring dialects or languages, in this case, severed from Arabic. In the larger project, I also cast doubt on endangered language discourse, premised on the Arabic versus Judeo-Arabic split, by asking whether the idea of a salvage project for a dying language does not reproduce the same conceptual binaries that produced the presumed disappearance of the language in the first place. Despite demographic dislocation from Arab spaces in the wakes of Palestine's partition, the Arabics spoken by Jews have always been and have remained intimately linked even now across the Israeli-Arab divide forming part of a living assemblage of Arabic variations. Examining Arabic vernaculars as performed along a discursive spectrum from erudite to popular culture, I try to highlight Arabic-Hebrew syncretism, tracing the presence of Arabic in Hebrew literature, cinema and music. Within a relational approach, the project stresses the phantasmatic dimension that led to Judeo-Arabic in the wake of its displacement from Arabic-speaking cultural geographies being simultaneously rejected and desired. What is then Judeo-Arabic? What is its status? Is it a language distinct from Arabic? what is its name in the putative language itself, and what's in a name. One is struck from the outset by a certain kind of attitudinal asymmetry toward the relation between Judeo-Arabic and Arabic. Jewish studies linguists in particular have invested much in generating the object called Judeo-Arabic language as partitioned off from Arabic. But if Jewish study scholars have tended to conceive Judeo-Arabic within a ghettoizing approach to the history and culture of Jews, scholars within Arab studies, or Arabic studies, have treated it with skepticism. Arab language scholars ask, in effect, whether Judeo-Arabic even has any actual existence apart from its source language, Arabic. On one side, the view could be summarized as, of course it's a separate language. On the other, as, what do you mean it's a separate language? It's just Arabic. Rather than separate the two scholarly and affective zones, I hope to bring them into dialogue. While acknowledging the specific liturgical aspects, I also cast doubt on the view of Judeo-Arabic as always already belonging to to the separate realm of Jewish languages, which is itself a newly invented and quite problematic category. The contested senses of belonging engaged by the question of Judeo-Arabic are intimately entangled with the definition of Jewish national identity, especially in terms of its anxious relation to any sense of Arab cultural belonging for Jews. This project highlights multiple relations addressing the case of Judeo-Arabic simultaneously in relation to the notion of Jewish languages, or Safot Yehudiot in Hebrew, and of Arabic di- dialects, Al-Lahajat al in Arabic. Judeo-Arabic, I suggest, is a slippery signifier, a situated utterance that has to be understood conjuncturally in its multiple linguistic situations and intellectual context. Thus, I will be using the term, as it were, under erasure, deploying it while also deconstructing it. Judeo-Arabic, a genealogy of an idea. We may begin by inquiring into the indigenous name for Judeo-Arabic within the putative language itself. Was the name Judeo-Arabic used by its writing, speaking subjects over millennia to differentiate their dialects or language from their neighboring dialects or languages? Should the term Judeo-Arabic be understood as a self-identified name that began with the emergence of a natural language dating back to the Arabic-speaking Jews in pre-Islamic Arabia and subsequently with the spread of Islam that led to the so-called Arabization of the Jews? Or did the term only appear as an identification marker to catalog linguistic communities as an object of study within the field of Jewish studies? As a field of scholarly inquiry, Judeo-Arabic has formed a vital arena within Judaic studies, especially since the 19th century so-called discovery of the Cairo Gniza. As you know, the Gnizah documents uh, which were first were encountered uh, in the wake of the rabbinical emissary Jacob Sapir's in 1865 visit to to the Fustat Cairo Synagogue, and then uh, taken by Dr. Salomon Schechter of Cambridge University uh, under the auspices of Lord Cromer and removed without actually necessarily the permission of the Ustad synagogue. In many ways, I have written about this so-called discovery and the dislocation of the artifact and the religious liturgical documents as a kind of a textual dislocation of the Arab Jewish documents which anticipated the physical and demographic dispersal of Arab Jews themselves uh, a century later or half a century later, one can say, of the partition of Palestine, the establishment of Israel and the Arab-Israeli conflict. The reason why I'm mentioning it here, is because the Gnizah, the, the so-called disc- discovery of the Gnizah document helped establish An interest in what came to be called gradually Judeo Arabic language. So, even the notion of Judeo Arabic prior to the Zionist project, the partition of Palestine, emerges in conjunction with the colonial project, in which, and as throughout my work and my new work, I speak about more the way that Ashkenazi Europeans have ended up participating in the colonial project toward their co religionist Jews in colonized spaces, be it in North Africa or or the Middle East. And certainly the Gnizah forms part of it, but the Gniza specifically became important in the emergence of Judeo Arabic, the notion of Judeo Arabic, i.e. Arabic written in Hebrew scripts, which I will, you know, if you have questions about it, I'll explain the, the social emergence and the reason for the emergence of this form. Since the departure of Jews from Arab countries, Judeo-Arabic has also become a site of ethnolinguistic research into a un- uniquely Jewish modes of speaking. Yet an inv- inevitable sense of a lost world, what might be called the last of the Mohican syndrome, has often relegated Judeo-Arabic to a vanishing universe. This relegation encompasses not merely the historical medieval textual world within Muslim spaces, as the Gnizah documents, but also the more recently departed post-48 Arab Muslim geographies. The conceptual displacement of Arab Jews, however, must also be traced to the Enlightenment, together with its corollary colonial modernity project, i.e. historical turns that projected Arab Jews and their language and culture into a chasm within Orientalist discourse. In particular, one can consider the gradual split between the Jew and the Arab, two groups that had earlier been sheltered together under the historical, biological, anthropological, philological, and and linguistic umbrella of Semitic peoples and languages. Within the Enlightenment, the Haskalah, and later with Zionism, scholars began to project the Orientalist schema exclusively, exclusively toward the other Semitic figure the Arab, and this is what Said actually discusses in his book in Orientalism. However, in my own work, I also asked the question, then where is the place of the Arab Jew in that split? Since then, I have argued that the Arab Jew has occupied an ambivalent position within the split, Premised on Orientalist axiom, axioms, including in a different way even toward the student in terms of Europe, Zionist modernization of the Hebrew language itself generated a certain desemitization in terms of syntax, in terms of Eliezer Ben Yehuda. I can explain if you later, if you want to know, in terms of accent, why Zev Jabotinsky wrote about it while the. Resurrected Hebrew was, uh, especially with the Zionist project we're talking about, was Europeanized Arabic and even so-called Judeo-Arabic as a so-called diaspora language was deemed moribund along with the death of the desert generation. The Judeo-Arabic language has subsequently become salvageable only as a lost object of scholarly investigation. At the same time, Judeo-Arabic became to be posited as, dis- as as a distinct language apart from Arabic, awaiting, as it were, its honorary incorporation <laughs> into a sui generis Jewishness associated with a dynamic Euro-Jewish nationalist revival of Hebrew. And its corollary of academic preservation of Jewish languages. In this sense, it is difficult to speak of Judeo-Arabic without entering the mindfield of Jewish nationalism as a meta-narrative that involves, one, the emergence of a historically relatively recent category called Jewish languages, an idea premised on a quarantining modality whereby Disparate languages or dialects come into existence by being symbolically severed from their contextual linguistic family and addressed through and in relation mainly to one another as long-lost diasporic relatives. And two, the linked emergence of a relatively new linguistic subcategory called Judeo-Arabic that was not to my knowledge, commonly used among the Jewish speakers and writers of Arabic, even when written in Hebrew script. So, let's now move into the examples. I want to start with the work of Hanun Anissa, which was written by haham Yosef Hayim in Baghdad, who lived from 1832 to 1909 and who continued a long tradition of writing Arabic in Hebrew letters, selecting it as his medium for Qanun and Nisa, the law of women, which was written in 1906. Directed largely toward Jewish women, this Arabic text in Hebrew letters was composed in a context where Jewish men, and to a lesser degree women, were traditionally trained to read Hebrew script regardless of their actual knowledge of the Hebrew language. Now, what I would like to, to read to you is that how he defines the language. Although Jewish study scholars classify this text as kind of a paradigmatic text of Judeo-Arabic, the author of the text, Haham Yosef Hayim, writes that it is lafz-arabi, meaning idiomatic Arabic, that the Baghdadi speaks among themselves, and which is comprehensible for women throughout the lands of Arabistan and Hindustan. Of course, we're speaking about turn of the 20th century, when there was already Iraqi Jewish diaspora, as it were, along the British colonial routes in the subcontinent, in Hong Kong, Shanghai, etc. So the reason why he's addressing Hindustan has to do already with this consumption of liturgical texts produced in Baghdad by the uh, Iraqi Jews in those spaces. The 19 uh, what's also interesting is that uh, this book was translated into Hebrew in 1979 in Israel by the Iraqi Jewish Ben Zion Salman Mosafi, who similarly declares itself as a translation from the Arabic language to the sacred language meaning Hebrew. In other words, he does not claim it's translated from Judeo-Arabic. So this is one example. So seen as a locus classical, cl- locus classicus of Judeo-Arabic, Qanun al-Nisa then describes its language as Arabic, a definition which points to the necess- necessity of rethinking the axioms of contemporary designations. Let me give you another example which I discuss in my work. This is the Sefer Birkot Shama'i Me'al, Book of the Blessings of Heavens Above which characteristically mixes Hebrew, Aramaic, and Arabic, all written in Hebrew letters, the text utilizes the three languages for different purposes, with Arabic largely reserved for information and instructions concerning the time and the manner to recite and perform the Hebrew prayer. Hebrew exists in the elevated realm of the sacred, while Arabic in its intimacy of the quotidian. The first prayer of the day, for instance, The first prayer of the day instructs the observant in Arabic. Anybody can read the second line? Okay, those of you who know Hebrew letters, okay, Uh, for those of you, okay, I'll read it. Those of you who know Arabic, can you understand what I just said? Okay, as soon, upon waking up, he says, okay. Uh, so this is the, the first day of, uh, you know, in the morning, once you pay and you, you, you wake up and you begin to pray. What's interesting here, the subsequent Hebrew sentence is L- largely here, the, uh, stipulates in the, the prayer in Hebrew. <laughs> okay, I'm reading it in an Iraqi accent, okay? Uh, the way I heard it as a child. So I offer thanks before you, living an eternal king, for you have mercifully restored my soul within me. Your faithfulness is great. What's interesting here is that soon after this location, this is, was published actually in Israel, this, this text. It was written actually in Baghdad. It had many printings before that. But this particular image that you see is published in 1952 by a small printing house, Ishak Baqal, in Jerusalem, which was largely directed at the freshly displaced Iraqi Jews. This reprinted version also contains let me go to the last page of the book, if you see here, i'lan Muhammad. Uh, those of you who know Arabic, you know I ju- what I just said. So, even if you do not speak Judeo Arabic, here is my proof. You understood what I said. <laughs> it's written presumably in Judeo Arabic, right? What you see here, the Ilan Moham is an important announcement that informs the reader about the publisher's additional liturgical books in Arabic, and it advertises the press's expertise of printing in other languages. Or in most, It says actually, in all languages, but they really mean all languages. People in the vicinity actually are speaking. So reflecting the implementation of addresses and population exchange, you see you also have here a word that is very interesting, Uh, it says adresna, our address, okay, very funny, I mean, you you have in Arabic, why use adresna, you have in fusha an actual word for it, right, Well, What is interesting, of course, it reflects, this is a residue, of course, of British colonialism. It's a linguistic residue of Iraq's British colonial history and its administrative modernization, which are faintly registered through English, as in, uh, in this word. Reflecting the implementation of addresses and population registry, the English loanword address appears in the form of an Arabized English. Address is followed by the Arabic suffix of the plural possessive pronoun na- denoting our address. So, written in Hebrew script, the single word adresna thus forms a threshold phrase drawn from two languages and mediated through the orthography of a third. Other geographies are more explicitly invoked in the publisher's brief recounting of the printing history in Livorno and later in uh, Baghdad, others in Calcutta. And I won't go into too many details, but what is important here is that Even after the epic-scale rupture of the dislocation from Arab countries, the publishers offers its reader a sense of textual continuity by pronouncing itself as carrying on their customs, or minhag, while also maintaining the tradition of using Arabic in liturgical texts. Now, what's interesting is that the book itself does not define its language as Judeo-Arabic. The term that it uses is actually that it is written in Arabic. This is actually a very, a very important that the, the self-definition here is a, a second instance. Even after, it is, uh, after partition and the publication in Israel, the Jews of Iraq continue to define their Arabic not as Judeo-Arabic but as Arabic. Okay, and let me take another example now, not from liturgical realm. This is from Calcutta. What we see here is a publication uh, of uh, a newspaper, Perach, that was published from 1878 to <coughs> 1889. It's a gazette that the Baghdadi Iraqi Jews were publishing, reporting about the various places and the various news from Iraq to the uh, Iraqi Jewish diaspora in this case it's uh, but the the publication of course was the gazette was based in calcutta and the the first page is the first page of the of uh, the publication it recites the torah verses to reveal the inspiration for the newspaper's name perah flower in hebrew the english meanwhile is reserved for announcing the journalistic rubric rubric gazette and its community affiliation, Jewish, and to indicate its authorized registry number. At the bottom, the paper details its publication schedule in Arabic, published once a, b- a week on Friday, Yom et Through evoking biblical Hebrew, Para highlights the significance of the Torah for the identity of the readers, despite the largely non-liturgical content. Modernity and tradition were thus, in this case shows, were flexibly lived in ways that hardly engendered (laughs) the secular religious bifurcation of post-Haskalah Ashkenazi Judaism. Perah's article, chronicles, and stories, meanwhile, were written in the major Jewish Iraqi Arabic, the Baghdadi idiom, and uh, stories of a thousand and one nights in Bad the Sailor were all appearing in the Baghdadi Jewish dialect, which was, in a way, a form of adaptation and translation from Fus'ha Arabic to the accessible idiom uh, of the community, and in letters that were more accessible. Because now we come back, why would you write Arabic in Hebrew letters? And partially it has to do with a simple sociological fact, which is most people, when they actually were educated and had access to read, they were first educated in Hebrew letters in order to be able to pray. That does not mean that they understood what they were reading. However, their first language was Arabic. Hence, this syncretic or hybrid form of, and it is not actually unusual, and I'll come to this question of the gap or the dissonance or the, if you wish, between the written the orthography and the language, that a language can be written in the orthography or the script of another language. What sense do we make out of this notion of Judeo-Arabic that we make a a sense out of this definition of Judeo-Arabic when I'm showing, giving you a few examples here of the self-designation of the language or the dialect that is never defined actually as Judeo-Arabic. It may say spoken among the Jews, but even in the local definition, when you have all those definitions, must be seen, as I said, as situated utterance and relational. So Jews in Baghdad define their uh, dialect in relation to the three other major dialects, the Christian and the Muslim. It was not conceived as another language. They would say Hakim al as opposed to Hakim al-Aslam or Hakim al nasara And I'll come to this point, but even in the spoken dialect, as opposed to what you now saw in the written text, it was commonly defined as the the speech or the dialect of the Jews, the the dialects uh, uh, of the Muslim, the dialects of the Christian, but it refers specifically to the city of Baghdad. It was not necessarily a general definition. That's why we have to understand it conjuncturally, as I often argued in my work, about conjunctural relational understanding of identities, cultures, and in this case of the linguistic imaginary. What does it mean for us that Judeo-Arabic, you know, is deployed when the indigenous speakers of the so-called language refer to it and define it historically quite differently? How should we understand that? I'll say that over the past few decades, the the terminological landscape has been dramatically transformed. Texts written in Arabic and Hebrew scripts are retrofitted to match a new nationalist vision of Jewishness detached from Arabness. For various reasons, Arab Jews and their descendants now themselves tend to deploy Judeo-Arabic to refer to their Arabic vernaculars, whether A, as a convenient shorthand to indicate the uh, Jewish identity of the Arabic user in a post-partition world where the idea of the Arab Jew seems to defy reason, B, to, to conform to the present-day hegemon- hegemonically circulating term in the public sphere, C, due, or you can say that it's due to the adoption, assimilation, and internalization of Jewish nationalism. The term Judeo-Arabic has gradually been abstracted from Arabic through a grid that emphasizes the uniquely Jewish languages spoken during 2,000 years of wandering, with the return to Israel, not only a lost homeland reclaimed, but also a linguistic home rebuilt. Reflecting the historically recent binary between the Arab and the Jew, Jew, Judeo-Arabic thus, and tells a story of the abandoning of Arabic, the Arabic habitat and resettlement in another, the house of Jewish languages. Recent years have witnessed the surfacing of journal, academic programs, and virtual research sites dedicated to Jewish languages. Within these spaces, the Arabic deployed by Jews enters a new nationalist universe that inquires into vanishing Jewish languages, suggesting, in effect, that Judeo-Arabic is actually not really Arabic, rather a Jewish language of the diaspora. In, in many ways, one can say that the way the currency of the term Judeo-Arabic is used is to suggest it's really not Arabic. It's a non-Arabic Arabic. It's a new kind of a paradoxical definition. Although the subject of the inquiry is the diaspora, in, you know, in capital D, uppercase D, the comparative framework and the conceptual readings are hardly diasporic And uh, and in my work, I distinguish between, I won't have time to go into it, into the diaspora with uppercase D, which is part of the Jewish Zionist narrative, as opposed to diasporas uh, with lowercase d, which we're speaking about in terms of geographical dislocation, especially in the post-colonial era, as opposed to a methodological concept that I call diasporic readings. Now, what's interesting about this way in which the idea of Judeo-Arabic is now incorporated, as I'm trying to argue, into a a nationalist Uh agenda while claiming that there is a salvage, that it is being salvaged under Jewish uh, or Israeli paradigm. In fact, this is something that I want, I'm not sure that I will have time to go into it, but in a longer essay that I'm happy to refer you to The Invention of Judeo-Arabic and another one, The Question of Judeo-Arabic, one published in the Arab Studies Journal, another in the Postcolonial Studies Journal Interventions. I I go into it in in more details. But saying that, it it also suggests that there is no way in which the descendants of Arab Jews or Arabic-speaking Jews could actually relearn and re-Arabize themselves by actually studying Arabic, participating in Arab culture. This is what it suggests to us, because there was never a time, presumably, where such Arabics actually overlapped, and that, that Judeo-Arabic actually belonged, in, in some ways, to the universe and the contextual framework from which it emerged in relation to its non-Jewish neighbors. As a kind of, but why did it happen? And what would uh, happen within Judaic studies? As a kind of ur language for the intra-Jewish comparative language studies, Yiddish has become the model for charting Jewish singularity vis-à-vis their neighboring non-Jewish languages. The argument about Yiddish's distinctiveness vis-à-vis German serves as a par- paradigmatic itinerary for severing other idioms from their previously defined linguistic family, uh, families and redefining them as additional Jewish languages extracting and elevating Yiddish from a dialect to the superior status of a language, which began in the late 19th century as a project of the Yiddishist movement, took place within a context in which the Haskalah led to a gradual abandonment of Yiddish among the secular Jews in favor of German. Hence, Max Weinreich's popularized formulation about the status of Yiddish vis-a-vis German, a language is a dialect with an army and a navy. The idea of Jewish languages is by definition embedded in the Jewish diaspora meta-narrative, meaning the Ashkenazi Jewish Diaspora Meta narrative, premise on the distance and alienation between the Jews and their surrounding environment. And I think what's important, I can see the reason for the Yiddishist movement to actually make that case. And in any case, as we know, it's quite flexible how we define language or dialect. And certainly as part of nation-state modernization project, the notion of unifying various dialects into one hegemonic language has been crucial. If we take, of course, France as one such paradigmatic case in which Parisian French becomes the model where all other dialects are suppressed in favor of one hegemonic one. So there is nothing unusual about it within the context of modernization and and nationalism. What's unusual, I think, in the case of of Judeo-Arabic is in which it is not the Arab Jews themselves who initiated this project of separation, and it is not the Arab Jews themselves, uh, only in recent years, as they joined the uh, notion of Jewish nationalism that you begin to see a shift and ret- uh, retroactive redefinition. In many ways, one can can, can call it as a kind of anti-Galut linguistics or anti-exilic idea of, of languages in which the nationalist project can only salvage the disappearing language. But we forget that it is the nationalist project itself that made those languages dialects disappear. But my argument in the final analysis is not that they're disappearing. It is the speaking subject as a native language that are dying and disappearing, but not the language or the dialect themselves in the sense that one can just cross the border to Mosul, Iraq, for example, and encounter a dialect that is quite similar to the Jewish Iraqi Baghdadi dialect. The question of orthography as I touched on, is actually uh, it's important because orthography does uh, define, par- but I would say, only partially an identity of a language and affiliation of its subject uh, speaking subject. However... It is a very limited and would be very... And uh, unfortunately, this has become a key element in the definition of the so-called language. If Hebrew orthography of Judeo-Arabic is the criterion for distinct language classification, then we would need to rethink such definitions, especially since, one, not all languages, not all languages have script, two, a language's script may change over the course of history, and three, script forms only one dimension of a language. You have other cases in the Middle East, for example, the Karshuni or Garshuni, which uh, exemp- uh, is, exemplifies the practice of writing Arabic in, in the Syriac alphabet, or the, which is an Aramaic variant, and used among some Christian Arabs in the regions of Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon. In the case of Turkish, as we know, the Kemalist revolution has changed the, Latin, uh, alf- uh, the Arabic into a Latin alphabet, etc., uh, one can even cite uh, an opposite movement in, in what is called Ladino or judeo The uh, Hebrew letters in, with modernity have changed just with Kemalism into Latin uh, alphabet. In uh, Brooklyn Syrian synagogues, where Parashat HaShavua, the weekly portion of the Torah, is published in three languages, Hebrew, Arabic, and English, you would find sometimes that Hebrew is written in Arabic letters. The opposite of the Judeo-Arabic case. And the reason for it is that many of those recent refugees from Syria in the 90s hardly had Hebrew education. So they could only read Hebrew if it's written in Arabic script. Which is the reversal of what we are used to. In many ways, the the notion of ontology and defining a linguistic ontology is is, becomes a kind of a national allegory. And I want to end now with uh, an example from a memoir written by Na'im Katan, Adieu Babylon or Farewell Babylon, because he begins the memoir with uh, with a description of of the dialect spoken by the inhabitants of, of Baghdad. And he speaks about a certain intellectual circle where they had Turkoman, Armenian, Muslims, and Jews all speaking Arabic. And he speaks about the fact that the normative way when they all got together was to speak in the hegemonic Baghdadi dialect, which is the Muslim dialect, which would be defined in linguistic terms as the Gulit dialect, as opposed to the Qaltu dialect, which is the northern uh, Iraqi dialect. But he says what's interesting is in one evening, uh, one of his friends actually decided to switch and started speaking the Jewish Baghdadi dialect, which was a highly uh, unusual thing to do. And he, as a recount about his young self, Naim Batam, was utterly embarrassed because that dialect was, tended to be the butt of the joke. It's a heavily emphasized dialect with a lot, with the letter Ka, but, but largely in that time, it's the Jews in Baghdad who spoke this dialect. But today, you know, anyone would identify it as a Muslawi dialect. And it is uh, even sometimes uh, made fun of, it's called Qiko because of the emphasis on the letter Ka as opposed to the ga in the Muslim dialect. So he's uh, totally embarrassed that his Jewish friend kind of um, exposing them, nonetheless, but he said that the other friends noticed and actually decided, all of them, to shift and try to speak in the Judeo-Baghdadi dialect. He said that this is, uh, uh, and he ends this section with writing the following, the mask had, the mask had fallen We stood there in our luminous and fragile difference, and it was neither a sign of humiliation nor a symbol of ridicule. In a pure Jewish dialect, we made our plans for the future of Iraqi culture. We did not take shelter behind the veil of an artificial equality. Our faces were uncovered, recognized at last. By performing a Baghdadi Jewish identity outside of Jewish homes and neighborhoods, Nisim, the friend of Naim Qatan, actively instigates a blurring of the boundary between major and minor Iraqi speech zones. The shame of the intellectual in his home idiom is soon replaced by its acceptance and with it the larger group's incorporation, displaying in Qatan's words such obvious goodwill, that is, goodwill toward the Jewish vernacular into and incorporating it into the conversation." Here, the Hakim al to echo the Jewish Baghdadi term of the, for the speech of the Jews, makes an allegorical entrance into the official symbolic space of the Iraqi nation. The memoir, which begins with a battle over vernacular interlocution, stages not only the inequality, but also the flexibility of Baghdad's vernaculars and the variegated negotiation of Arabic in the public sphere. So, my last paragraph. The point of this presentation has not been to cast doubt on the invaluable comparative research on the Jewish, Hebrew, Aramaic components of the diverse languages and dialects deployed by Jews, but rather to question the exceptionalist axiom that severs them from their non-Jewish cultural geographies. It is useful to deploy Judeo-Arabic as a rubric or scholarly shorthand to refer to texts that typically mix several languages, Arabic, Hebrew, and Aramaic, or to evoke Arabic texts written in Hebrew Letters or to label the study of the various forms of Arabic spoken and written by Jews, especially within intra-religious and intra-community communal settings. It is a very different matter to deploy Judeo-Arabic to demarcate an ontologically isolatable language common to all Jews in Arab lands. Studying the various Arabic dialects spoken by Jews within a kind of prison house of Jewish languages renders Jewish-Muslim affiliation as at best something to be relegated to the golden age of medieval history. Yet instead of an analytical framework that would sanctify the feta accompli of colonial violence, breaking up of the Jewish-Arab cultural formation, the framework I'm adopting here highlights Arabic, the Arabic deployed by Jews as also part of a palimpsestic continuum of Arabic variations, including some generated by colonial or post-colonial hybridizations. The case of the Arabic used by Jews illuminates the fluidity, elasticity, and convergences of various languages discernible across the regions for all speech communities. I have tried to show here the advantages of an approach that emphasizes the lived affiliation of Arab Jews with the Arabic language within a multidirectional and intersectional approach to their Arabic vernacular vernaculars, and cultural expression. Such an approach, I would argue, is more likely to capture the fluidities, the, in-between, the in-betweens and the crease-crossings of languages and dialects as they intersect across various kinds of borders. Thank you very much.
2: Thank you very much, Ella, for a really interesting uh, lecture. And thank you, Yaakov, for inviting me uh, to participate. Um, uh, it is a great pleasure and honor to participate in this event. It's a big event that's going to celebrate Ella work, work, and I'm, I'm privileged to be part of it and to comment on Ella's talk. Shochat's vast and uh, rich uh, scholarship had a massive impact on the development of my own academic uh, path from its beginning. It also influenced greatly the work of most current scholars that specialized on Arab Jewish thought and history, as well as on Israel-Palestine cultural history. Shochat opened for us new theoretical and disciplinary horizons. She introduced to the Israeli political and academic circles the anti-colonial and post-colonial thought. She was the first one to translate Said and Fanon into the Jewish Zionist Israeli context many years before their actual translation into Hebrew. She also introduced new analytical tools to explore and understand cultural history beyond the existing nationalist-partitioned academic fields. Her most significant contribution was the research on the Arab Jew. Through the use of this category, she had sought to disentangle the history of, and culture of the Mizrahim from the narrow, restrictive boundaries of Jewish nationalism. The question of the Arab Jew for Shochat was broader than the Israeli Zionist context or the symbolic and physical boundaries of the state of Israel. Instead, she wrote the history and the culture of the Arab Jews in its fullness and complexities, transcending the geographical, historical, and disciplinary boundaries. We should be reading Shochat's important uh, current work on uh, Judeo-Arabic, in light of her uh, larger research project and contribution in the last three decades, especially in the context of her work on the Arab Jew. But there is an interesting difference between the two. While in regard to the Arab Jew, Shochat was the founder of a forgotten, negated topic, her work on the Judeo-Arabic has a different entry point. It enters into a heavily researched topic, placed in an established disciplinary field, in which she suggested a radical shift in our understanding of that field. A contribution, more than it aspires to develop the existing scholarly literature on the Judeo-Arabic, seeks to reveal and problematize the boundaries of the category and the field itself, exploring its organizing principles, revealing the broader uh, political and ideological context in which it emerged, and pointing out the aspects that were overlooked, erased, negated, and marginal. While the term and category of the Arab Jew produced and and still producing mainly host- hostility and, uh, and opposition in the scholarly and the political circles, the category of Judeo-Arabic, paradoxically, has been widely accepted as a legitimate uh, object of scholarly inquiry. Within Shochat's work, we can identify several reasons for this gap or these differences. First, the Judeo-Arabic is being associated with Jewish studies and Jewish languages, this is in distancing it from the history of the Arabic language and Judeo-Muslim tradition. Second, as a paraphrase to uh, Steinschneider, is a famous Jewish uh, scholar in the 19th century, his argument in the end of the 19th century that the history of the Jews has ceased to exist, and as a result, and I quote, the only task we, the Jewish scientists, have left to do is giving the remains of the Judaism a decent burial. This kind of a decent burial, one can apply the same logic to the emergence of the judeo Arabic as a research field. Its mission was to give the Arabness of the Jews or the Judeo Muslim tradition a decent burial through the scientification of the Arabic language that was written and spoken by the Jews for hundreds of years. And in that sense, you can see in both ways of Judeo Arabic. First is the Latinization to make it only a script, only um, that, uh, that scholars of Judeo Arabic can't read it. It's only a script that you investigate in, or the dying languages brand that there is already dead language that we have to only to preserve. Third, appropriation of the Judeo-Arabic tradition into a general westernized Jewish thought history while dispossessing the Arab Jews as its successors and disconnecting it from the modern Arab Jewish Mizrahi history and culture. And, and Ella heard already about the Gnizah study that she wrote. Many art- she, she, she mentioned and, and investigated the case studies in articles before and in articles on the Judeo-Arabic. Four, the nationalization and unification of Hebrew and Arabic languages and partition between the two and cultures, which negate the complexity and variety of Arabic languages and exclude the Judeo-Arabic. I would like to apply Shochat's work on the Judeo-Arabic to two case studies of Arab-Jewish engagements uh, with Judeo-Arabic in uh, Hebrew letters, uh, Judeo-Arabic language. The first case will highlight resistance the partition of the Arabic language from the Arabic and Judeo-Muslim tradition, and the second case will trace current social phenomena which operate in post-partition reality. The first case is situated within debates among Jewish intellectuals regarding the historical memory of the Jewish cultural legacy of Islamic Iberia. In the heart of these disputes, which took place during the turn of the 20th century, was the issue of the separation between Hebrew and Arabic languages and literary tradition. This is a crucial moment in the partition process of Jewish and Arabic tradition and languages, as well as in the emergence of the Judeo-Arabic as a category and a field of inquiry. The Arab Jewish intellectuals who participate in the debate identified quite early the process of isolating the research on Andalusian Jewish and Hebrew literature from its Arabic context. In that sense, they're they're specifically going to the Arabic or the the, the, Judeo-Arabic, the text that the Jews wrote in Arabic and Hebrew characters, as the, this kind of phenomenon, looking at them as either a Jewish language or only in their Hebrew uh, aspect, and before, reading Ella, I was working on this kind of debate. Before, reading Ella's work, I didn't real, realize this kind of the the, the negation of the Judeo Arabic as as trying as a perform a performance of separating between between Arabic and the Jewish uh, languages, and it really illuminated... And I have a great uh, death in, uh, to Ella in that sense. This trend was manifested uh, uh, both explicitly and implicitly in some of the research works of the science of Judaism circles. Even Jewish scholars in, this, in those circles emphasized the Western character of Judaism while ignoring and playing down its Arabic and Eastern characteristics. This also included... Erasing prominent role of the Arabic language and culture in the Jewish Andalusian heritage. In these disputes, Avraham Shalom Yehuda is an interesting uh, figure. Uh, was born in Palestine in 1877, in Jerusalem, a Palestinian Jew with the uh, Baghdadi roots. That was uh, educated in Heidelberg and, and Strasbourg and was uh, was an Orientalist and uh, an uh, political uh, figure, and he was a big, uh, he, he had a leading role in this kind of dispute as, a, as an Arab Jew defending this kind of, uh, or resisting this kind of uh, partition. His uh, main criticism was pointed towards the Jewish scholars who were engaged in republishing scholarly edition of uh, Jewish Andalusian poets and thinkers. Ya'uda criticized the lack of relation and affiliation to Arabic language and culture in their research which was for him not just a subject for historical study, but also an integral part of contemporary Jewish existence and of, future, and of the future of the Jews in Palestine. In his own research, Yehuda introduced a different approach to the Jewish legacy in Arabic. One of his major scientific work was an edition of the Chovot Alevavot, The Proper Guidance of the Religious Duties of, uh, duties of the Heart, transliterated from Arabic published in 1912 in Germany. Authored by the 11th century Andalusian thinker, uh, Ibn Pakudeh, Rabbi Rabbi The fame of the Chovot HaLevavot lies in the fine quality of as one of the earliest systematic work of, on ethics and spirituality in Jewish tradition, as well as a strong connection, as well as its strong connection to Islamic literature. The book was written in Arabic in Hebrew letters, what we will call today Judeo Arabic, and was translated into Hebrew by uh, Judah Ibn Tibbon soon after its completion. In his modern edition, Yehuda returned to their original. Judeo Arabic manuscript rather than to the Hebrew translation. Yehuda also transliterated the book to standard Arabic, to Arabic in uh, Arabic uh, script, as he says in in his introduction to make the work also accessible to modern Muslim and Jewish scholars of the Orient. And I quote The educated Jews of the present East avail themselves exclusively of Arabic script when they when they write literary Arabic. They employ Hebrew cursive script only for the different Judeo-Arabic dialects. But there are many of them who are not capable of reading an Arabic book in non-Arabic characters. End of, end of quote. In this passage from Yehuda's introduction, we can learn that he... First, doesn't see the Judeo-Arabic as a separate language, as Ella uh, and supporting Ella claim in her lecture, but rather as a variant of a of, or dialect of Arabic. And that his project transli- of transliterating uh, the text from Hebrew to Arabic script is not an act of translation. It's not an act of translation between two different languages. Moreover, he describes the transformation of the educated Arab Jews, uh, new Arab-Jewish intellectuals, that moves only to Arabic script. As part of a larger Arabic phenomena, part of the Nada, that he was also part of this, it was really influenced on, on his education uh, too. It seems that Yehuda's fierce and clear objection to the separation of Arabic and Hebrew represented something bigger than a scientific or political dispute. He identified the danger of the logic of partition from its early stages and tried to prevent it. His objection was the, uh, to the partition of Arabic and Jewish tradition through the separation of the Andalusian scholars and poets from the larger Arabic and Islamic intellectual and cultural tradition, while emphasizing their Hebrew aspects and labeling, labeling their language as Judeo Arabic. The second ca- case study is situated more than a century later, in a post partitioned reality in Israel-Palestine. In the past uh, several years, there is an interesting phenomenon of Arab-Jewish engagement with the Judeo-Arabic culture and language. The most interesting example is the process of this process, is the preserving of the the Iraqi language, the Meshemri Metasafah Iraqit, or we should call it Meshomrim in an Iraqi accent. It's a group uh, established several years ago uh, as a a Facebook uh, page and now has more than 50,000, I think even close to 60,000 members. The uh, the forum's activities go beyond the internet boundaries and include social gathering, conferences, and musical events. In the group's discussion alongside linguistic discussions about the expression of uh, uh, Jewish Iraqi jargon, there are also personal, communal uh, memories, discussion about food and customs, etc. Most of the members of the forum are Iraqi Jews from diverse age groups, living in Israel, but also Iraqi Jews living in London, Toronto, New York, and Los Angeles. This phenomenon allegedly represents a challenge to the Zionist ethos of negation of the exile and the erasure of uh, erasure of the diasporic history and language. In her previous writing, Ela Shochat uh, described how the process of negating the exile was particular particularly violent in the case of the Arab Jews, whose Arab culture was identified with the enemy. Are we witnessing the beginning of a new era in which the Mizrachim are trying to renew contacts with the culture of Arab region? A closer look of these developments reveal a more complex picture. Although the Mishmarim group, uh, the forum, uh, holds a lively discussion on the linguistic issues, these uh, discussions are usually held within a Jewish-imagined geography that is detached from the general Arab context. Thus... The Iraqi language is presented as it, if it emerged and developed in a vacuum and traveled to the Iraqi Jewish communities and neighborhoods in Israel from nowhere. And in each of held a year ago with the founder of the forum, Zehava Bracha, she said that one of the motives that led her... To establish the forum was to revive the Jewish-Iraqi language, which was dominant in her hometown of Oriuda, that was uh, dominant by Iraqi Jews. Uh, But now most of her generation is ashamed of. She claimed that they had uh, distanced themselves, her generation, from the Arabic-Iraqi language because, and I quote, they were told that this is the language of the Arabs. And I tell them to come out of it. This is our language. This is our culture. And of course, one be in a, subvers- a subversive reading, Barakha's statement, this is our language, this is our culture, can be analyzed as a political act of reclaiming the Arabic language and culture by the second generation of Mizrahim after decades of erasure. However, a close reading into the forum reveals that Barakha's statement only emphasized the desire to distinguish between our Jewish Iraqi language to theirs, general Arabic language, the language of the non-Jews, uh, non-Jewish non Arabs or the Palestinians. In other words, our language is not part of the Arab culture and language, but rather a separate Jewish language. This process connects directly with Chochat's argument regarding the ways in which the Arabic language of the Jews was displaced in modern Jewish scholarship from the, Arab li- from the Arabic linguistic space and history and resettled into a new linguistic space of Jewish tongues alongside Ladino, Yiddish, and Judeo-Persian. In May two thousand eight, uh, in May two thousand eighteen, a month ago, the Israeli Foreign Ministry initiated a Facebook page under the name Israel in the Iraqi dialect, inspired by the Mishamrim group, by the group of uh, uh, the, the other Facebook, and its purpose is, in a quote, to share the exciting, to share exciting stories about large Jewish community that lives. That lived in Iraq and continues to exist in Israel. Similarities between the two cultures, presenting the achievements and diversity of Israel, and so on. And end of quote. Linda Menuchin, uh, she's a Iraqi Jew that was uh, that immigrated to Israel in, 19, in the early 1970s, and she's really active member in the Meshamrim group and, and their activities. But in the same time, she's an Arab digital media consultant to the foreign ministry and probably one of the initiators of this uh, Facebook page, argues that, and I quote, In Iraq, there is a great wave of longing for the period until 1950, when the Jews constituted a quarter of the population in Baghdad and brought prosperity to the country, end of quote. On the other hand, in Iraq, there is a fear of Iranian takeover. takeover. It managed to free itself from the Ba'ath regime. Many elements around us incite hatred against Israel. So in any addition of Arab peoples that have an appreciation for Israel is very important. So we see uh, obvious appropriation uh, of the, this kind of return, that it was a grassroots, interesting movement of return to the Judeo-Arabic, but now it's taking over by the foreign ministry and becoming uh, Israeli, as a tool for Israeli uh, propaganda. So here we find again the tragic circle in which the only route of Arab Jews in Israel to return to their Arabness is to pass through the Zionist metanarrative and the Israeli interest. In this case, the Jewish-Iraqi dialect returns to the general Arabic context, it's yes, becoming again in Arabic script, only when it is associated with the Zionist Hasbara propaganda sponsored by the Israeli foreign ministry. Re-engaging with the Judeo-Arabic past and present, or with the Arab-Jewish past and present, through through Shochat's work, opens for us new theoretical and political roots, which trace back roots that have been erased in the territorial, disciplinary, and linguistic partition process. It does not offer a nostalgic return to the past, but rather a proposal for a new epistemologic, epistemology and politics in relation to the present. It says an alternative way of thinking about the contemporary political and cultural reality outside the logic of partition, which has dominated political and academic thought in Israel-Palestine for more than a century. Thank you.